it's getting dark, Erin. It's pretty dark and there is nobody else out here. No, it is deserted. It's kind of creepy. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to invite human nature listeners out to the woods around a campfire to tell some stories. It's the time of year when the air starts to get crisp and the nights get longer. It just kind of creeps you out. It sets the scene. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature. Real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Erin Jones. This time, we're exploring that place that isn't quite human and isn't all the way natural, but someplace in between. Some people have words for the in-between, like the paranormal or the supernatural. Others don't believe in it at all. Either way, we're opening up the portal. We're hearing stories from people who have glimpsed the other side. So stoke the campfire and gather close. Because the woods are lonely, dark and deep, and Caroline, we've got miles to go before we sleep. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, so for this first story, a friend asked Brian Profizer if he would play music for a Christmas party at the old train depot in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So on a snowy December night, Brian and his friend Phil played music while folks ate dinner. Eventually, they finished their set. The depot was really crammed. There were a lot of people in there, and there was a lot of different stuff going on. So we decided to kind of peace out and find a shady spot where we could discuss women, religion, and politics, you know. <laughs> The only place that there wasn't people in the depot was a staircase. And so we climbed up to the second floor landing and we're sitting there talking. And well, while we were doing that, I happened to grab the, the door that goes to the second floor city offices and just test to see if it was unlocked. And it was. So I opened it, you know, a couple inches and let it go. And then it opened the rest of the way. And I kind of jumped back a little bit. Looking to the other side of the door, there was a friendly, mustachioed face of a fellow who had been sitting behind the door, and we scared each other. We, we kind of, we both jumped at the same time. And the, the fellow that was sitting over there was uh, a fellow who works for the city. His name is Albert, and he's kind of the caretaker. He works there a couple days a week. After we both regained our composure, I said, you know, sorry about that. I just was just was dinking around here and he goes, oh no, you know, I heard a voice on the other side of the door. I've been sitting here for a while. And he goes, uh, I was trying to uh, listen, see what, what was happening. Cause I thought it might've been one of the ghosts. And I kind of looked at him skeptically. I said, you know, what do you, what do you mean? Ghosts? This place is haunted. He goes, oh yeah, you haven't heard. I said, man, yeah, I've heard ghost stories when I was a kid. He said, no, no, really. I, you know, I work here and there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on. Uh, stuff that's happened to me, stuff that other people have said, you know, weird feelings, be working by yourself and you, you kind of see something move out of the corner of your eye. You hear people talking, you hear stuff moving around. He says, it's really weird when you're in the basement by yourself, you know, put stuff away. And his follow-up was, well, do you guys want to go see the basement? 
The only way to get down to the basement in the depot, take the elevator down, you put a special key in, brings it down to the basement level, and then it holds the doors open. So we went down there, and the, the basement of the, the Cheyenne Depot is very narrow. It's I'm about 5'10", so I had to kind of stoop over, prevent from hitting my head. There's steam pipes that run right above the above your head there and there's about a three foot wide concrete path the rest of the floor is dirt just gravel and rock loose rock and we walked through the length of the basement goes the whole length of the depot albert was saying okay this is where the switchboard operator was this is where you know this was storage lost baggage whatever and we we went all the way to the end and we turned around and we were on our way back and we were walking in a single file line because there wasn't much room. So Albert was in the front, I was behind him, and then Phil was behind me. So we get about halfway back to where, where we had come from, and I hear a noise behind me. I turn around, and, and Phil, is he's turned completely around. He's like rubbing the back of his head. You know, just kind of gave him a look, and he looks at me, and his, his mouth is wide open. He goes, somebody threw something at me. And I, I've known Phil for years and years since we were kids, and he's, he's a jokester. He's a prankster. And I was going, yeah, good one, Phil. You know, way, way, way to go. You know, perpetuating ghost stories. But I, I looked behind him. This is where my mind kind of reached a kinda, sort of a, a breaking point. This is kind of hard to reconcile. Because looking behind him, you could see on the concrete walkway there were a bunch of loose rocks and chunks of concrete and gravel that were kind of skittering towards us like somebody had, had thrown a fist of a fist of pebbles or rocks and I looked you know where I looked where it was coming from and it was like eight or ten feet behind him it was moving towards us and there was nobody on that other end there's no way to get down there there's just there's a staircase and an elevator and they're both on the other side so while I was kind of, you know, oh, good one, Phil, my mind started to think, okay, that, that, that's good. How'd he do that? How'd he do that? And I looked in his face, and he was pretty wide-eyed, and I, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that he wasn't joking. So I thought, well, okay, that's pretty weird. And Albert goes, yeah, you're, you're not the first guy that has happened to. I've had stuff fall on me, and... Now the, the kind of eeriness is kind of dialed up a little bit. And I asked him, I said, um, you know, when I was going to school, every school child in Cheyenne learns this at some point or another. And I never knew whether it was true or not. I said, there supposedly was a tunnel that went from the, the depot to the Capitol building, ran underneath Capitol Avenue or Hill Street, I think it was called at the time. And he, he looked at me, he goes, well, I, you know, I don't know really of any tunnel Except for this one over here. So we went back towards the elevator. The elevator straight ahead. To the right was a opening. It's the best way to describe it. About six feet above the ground. And it was probably about three foot by three foot square. And there were steam pipes that ran through it. They ran over your head and they took a turn and went through this tunnel. So he says, well, this is the only tunnel I know of. And he says, I don't know where it goes. Never, you know, gotten very deep in it. It's just a passageway. So we, we walked up towards it, and I found a chair or step stool or something to stand on. Stood up, and I was peering into this tunnel. And I, 
it was weird because it was absolutely the darkest dark you'd ever seen in your life. Like the 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 black was just consuming. You could see just a little bit of steam pipe, and I, you know, of course, pulled my phone out and shined the flashlight in there. Shining that flashlight down there, you could see more black and about three more inches of steam pipe, and that was it. You know, the one thing that was was really kind of strange is the, the the basement. Although it was on the in the basement level, it was very very warm because of the steam pipes running above your head, so you could feel the heat radiating off of that. But in that little corner, it was just absolutely ice cold. In the different the space of about two and a half feet, it went from you feeling the heat to it like you were standing outside. And it was snowing real good that night. I, I can remember that. So it was pretty chilly. I looked in that tunnel, I could see my breath. And we're looking in there, and I said, I I want to see where this goes. At that point, there there came this noise. It was very loud. It was very close by. All three of us kind of whirled around to look and see where it was coming from. Well, that noise was coming from the elevator, which was next to us. It w- was some sort of like, I-, I guess that's the fire alarm. There's a fire curtain that unrolls over the opening of the elevator. And remember, the doors were stuck open. This fire curtain unrolls itself down towards the floor. And of course, you know, we're looking go, what the hell is that? And while we're watching this, it rolls itself about halfway up, and then rolls halfway down, and then rolls back halfway up, and then the doors this whole time are opening, closing, opening, closing. So I tell you, every hair on my head was standing straight up. I I had never had a feeling like this before or since. Then to add to it, and all, remember all the time this, this buzzer is going off and it sounds kind of anemic and it'll get stronger. So these doors are opening and closing, this curtain's rolling itself up and down. Albert walks over there and there's a little release button on the curtain, he pushes it and nothing happens, it just keeps kind of doing its thing. Then there's an emergency light above where the elevator door is. That comes on and the rest of the lights in the basement dim. They don't go completely out but they dim almost all the way to nothing. So here's this emergency light. All of a sudden we're in this bright, brilliant light. And I remember looking towards the ceiling and just seeing my breath. That's, that's all I can concentrate on. My breath is coming out. And Albert looks and goes, much calmer than I was or Phil was. He's like, maybe we should head back upstairs. <laughs> so head towards the, uh, the elevator and the fire curtain's still down. He goes, well, let's let's take the stairs. And I tell you, the three of us were moving pretty quickly towards the staircase, the left side, and Phil threw his entire weight towards that door. And that door, I remember, it must have been hilarious from the other side, because that door burst open. There's all these people standing around at the bar, just kind of looking at us, and we kind of, you know, oh, hey, play it cool, play it cool. Brush off. It's okay. You're all right. We turned around to Albert and we're like, thanks for the uh, thanks for the tour. We're gonna leave now. And I tell you, I was really wound up the whole drive home. I was like, that that was really weird. That's something I can't explain. And I really felt sorry for the poor guy who had to you know clean everything up and take all the tables and chairs down into the basement later that night. Those old tunnels are pretty creepy. I wouldn't want to explore one. Or would I? Well, we can, Erin. There are weird architectural features all throughout the West. 
Trish Rader works at a witchy shop in Laramie, Wyoming, called The Herb House, which sells sage bunches, teas, crystal balls, that sort of thing. And according to her, customers aren't the only visitors they get. The Herb House is downtown. It's actually on the same block radius as Sweet Melissa's, which used to be the Bloody Bucket, which was, you know, a saloon, and they had a lot of shootouts there, and and it was a brothel, and above the herb house is a completely renovated space. It used to be an apartment, we think, or maybe legal offices. Really nothing up there other than asbestos, but there's this entity up there that shapeshifts from a grown man to a little boy. He definitely has a hold I don't know how else to describe it, a hold on the other spirits of the herb house. Whenever someone goes up there, it's like he gets really upset to the point to where even employees, everyone downstairs and below is agitated, angry for the day, we're snipping at each other, like more teas get knocked off the shelf than usual. We hear, you know, footsteps from upstairs, pacing. It's it's really creepy because you can really feel that whoever's up there has like a, an energy over everyone else in the herb house. So we try not to go up there <laughs> as, as often as we can because we know that if someone goes up there, everyone's going to have a bad day. Another ghost at the herb house is, we call him the brown man. He dresses in a brown coat and top hat and brown shoes. Usually I just see like a shadow of him kind of By the tea, he likes to knock over boxes and stuff, but I legitimately saw a person dressed in a top hat. He was looking at a tea set. I thought, oh, this person's dressed up for Halloween because it was around, it was like October 25th-ish, you know, and went out there because I was in the back and I went through the curtain to go out to the front and no one was there. And then there's another more creepy ghost that's in the way back of the store. It used to be a garage and then we renovated it to be a lab space to do tinctures and herb capsules and stuff. All I can describe him is as a man that's kind of like a spider. It's the weirdest thing. Like he comes in the form of like a black mask, but with these spines. I only saw him first as a man in the corner, just kind of sitting there, minding his own business. It was the weirdest thing. I thought that there was someone else back there. And then when I, like, really looked at the corner, of course, there was no one there. My fellow employee, Ariana, at the time said that she thought that that entity was definitely demonic, that it was very hostile and very angry, and that it wanted to hurt people. One of the um, first things I remember when I first started working there was we had to go to the basement. And that was where we store like a lot of our boxes and extra stuff. And there's actually a tunnel that used to connect the basement of Sweet Melissa's to the herb house, but it's caved in now. And there are a lot of booths down there, weird, just empty booths with, you know, old chairs. And it's very creepy. But when I was down there, when I first started working, I think I felt like just a presence of, I don't know how to describe it, but feminine presence. And I felt like I was in a room full of, you know, girls. And I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of interesting. And and then second time when I went down there to kind of organize things, I felt someone touch my earring. 
And it really freaked me out at first, but I kind of, I was calm at the same time, but it literally felt like someone had touched my earring. And it kind of brought tears to my eyes because I was like, is whoever down here, like, do they like my, my earrings? And come to find out, my boss, Carolyn, told me that actually it's not documented, but they think that there were a lot of women who were down there who serviced men. And we don't know if, you know, maybe they had been killed or raped or whatnot, but it was really, it's a really sad place to be because most of the employees at the Herb House are women. And so it's kind of, it's kind of hard to go down there sometimes to feel that and to be just be overcome with lots of sadness. I love that there's a feminine presence in this place and those women experience a lot of pain. And now there are these women who are powerful and mystical sharing that space. I bet it's kind of nice for the ghosts, you know, like maybe maybe they can heal. Yeah, I hope so. But I also wonder how ghosts respond to people who aren't as open as maybe Trish. Well, Felicia Friesma doesn't believe in ghosts. She wants to be very clear on that point. But eight years ago, she found herself face-to-face with something otherworldly in an old Victorian hotel room. I was assigned to go down to San Diego for a conference for work. And I am a procrastinator, so I booked a little late. And so as a result, the conference hotel was already booked out. So I had to find another hotel, preferably close to the convention center where it was being held. And the only one that had rooms available was this lovely little boutique hotel in San Diego's gas lamp district. I got to the hotel pretty late. I had been driving straight from Los Angeles, and and there had been an accident that night. So it took me a while. I was tired. I was pretty depleted. And I rolled into the hotel, and they were like, oh, great. We have your room ready. Here's a cup of tea. (laughs) thought that was really a nice touch. So I relaxed a little bit before going up to my room and settled in. It was a beautiful hotel, Victorian, had some really interesting history, was really nicely restored. Went to bed early that night and just sort of snuggled in. And within a couple hours, I woke up because I was really cold. And I looked over at the windows and one of them was fully opened. And I thought, oh, I had no, I didn't know that it was, was open. I guess I went to sleep with it that way. This was San Diego in November. So It gets pretty chilly there at night and pretty wet because the marine layer rolls in from the ocean. So I was damp and I was cold and so I went over and I shut it and then I rolled back into bed and then a few hours later I woke up again because I was cold again and I look over and the window's open again. So I'm thinking, okay, so it's broken or something. I I slam it shut and I tried to look for like a latch or something to, to make sure it, it's bolted down and I couldn't find anything. So I struggled with it for a few minutes and then finally went back to bed. And then of course, lather, rinse, repeat, it happened again. And by that point I had woken up and it was like maybe like four o'clock in the morning. I decided I'll just get up and I'll start getting ready and I'll walk, I'll walk over to the convention site early and grab some breakfast. And so I get into the shower and I checked the temperature of the water before getting in because hotel showers can be a little persnickety. And I stepped in and it was fine. And then I went to reach for the soap and I got scalded. The water immediately turned hot. And so I I jumped back and I stuck my hand out and I, I went around to try and reach the knob to adjust the temperature again. 
and it was fine. It was back to normal temperature. So I went and I got under it, and then I went to go reach for the soap again, and then I got scalded again. So I, I jumped back. And at this point, I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is getting a little weird. So I kind of look at the shower head and I reach around and I try to adjust the temperature down cautiously and I lower it so it's cold or colder. And uh, I get under the water and it's fine. And I kind of pause looking up at the shower. And then I start to relax a little bit. And I'm like, okay, just get get this done. And I go to reach for the soap again and then I start to get scalded again. This dance goes on for a little while until I finally get clean and then I get out of the shower and I'm just, I don't understand what that was about. Just get ready. So I go to the mirror in the hotel. I start to comb my hair and I start to put my makeup on and I'm really close up to the mirror and I'm I'm noticing my colors off. Like I look like I'm just really sick and I think that, oh, you must be so tired from yesterday. So I start putting on my makeup and I notice my eyes are starting to slowly look a little droopy like around the edges, like they're kind of falling down on the edge. And then my lips went gray. That was the weird part because I was starting to put on my, my lipstick and the color didn't seem to affect anything. It was like my lips were like this horrible kind of just off color. And I, I stood back from the mirror and looked back at myself and It looked like I had aged 40 years. I was just taken aback. Like, I went in closer and I started touching my face and looking at my eyes, and then the the white part of my eyes started to turn yellow. Like, it was getting creamy colored and then yellow, and I I was freaking out at this point. And I put my face in my hands and just shook my head really violently back and forth. And then I pulled my head up, I peeked up over my hands, and my face was back to normal again. But my makeup was really garish looking. Like, I I had been apparently overcompensating for this visual that I was working against. And so my eyeliner was really, really thick, and my blush was ridiculously vivid. (laughs) It looked like I was overcompensating with the lip liner to try and kind of get the color back in my lips again. At this point, I was like, okay, that's it. So I just washed my face really fast, and I decided I would go to the conference fresh-faced, and I brushed out my hair. I didn't even bother to dry it. And I went downstairs. At this point, it's like probably close to 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and the concierge is out. He notices me walking towards the door, and he says, ma'am, are you all right? And I kind of turn around, and I said, well... The strangest thing just happened to me. And I didn't even tell him the story yet. And he said, are you in room 309? And I kind of looked at him and I said, yeah, yeah, I am. And he responded by saying, oh, they should have known better to put a woman in that room. And I got really offended. Like, I was like, what does my being a woman have to do with anything? I mean, I started getting all feminist angry and just really took off. And I was about to give him the what for because he hadn't even heard my story yet. And he goes, no, 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 you need to understand that room is haunted. And I don't, I don't believe in ghosts. I really don't. At this point, I looked at him like my eyebrows cocked up and I'm like, what? And he says, the hotel was built on top of the site of an old brothel. And apparently in room 309, the woman who used to run the brothel likes that room 
and she doesn't like young women in her room. And she'll sometimes do little things to make young women uncomfortable, you know, nothing harmful. And I was like, well, I don't know, scalding water coming out of the shower is kind of harmful. <laughs> and I, I chuckled, I just laughed. And he's like, okay, we'll send someone up to get your stuff out of the room and we'll put you in a new room. But if you'd like us to help you book a new hotel, we'll help you do that too. And I looked at him and I, I was kind of joking. I was like, why, is she gonna follow me? And he didn't smile. He didn't crack a joke or anything. So I was like, oh, I guess I better book a new hotel. <laughs> so I booked a new hotel. <laughs> she did not follow me. Being in the woods right now feels cozier than being in the city after that story. It's just very quiet. Right now, if we heard anything in those woods, it wouldn't be the wind. Maybe it's a moose. So have you ever encountered anything in the woods that you didn't think should be there? Yes. One time I was on a road trip by myself through the southeast, and I had made it to northern Arkansas, and I was in a national forest there. And the woods there aren't like the woods here. They're so thick, like you can't you can't get through them. A rabbit couldn't get through them. And so I was driving down this road and it was just a wall on either side of me. It was like I was going through a tunnel and I was trying to find a place to camp for the night. And I pulled off onto this dirt road and I was going down the road and I was like playing my music really loud because these woods were really creeping me out and I couldn't see anything and it was just pitch black out. And then suddenly I slammed on my brakes because this little white dog had run out in front of me in the road. And I stopped and I stared at it and it stared at me and I got out of the car and it kind of ran away. And so I kept going down the road. And then eventually I saw this sort of widening on the side of the road and I was like, I'll pull my car off there. I'll camp for the night. And I angled my car so that the headlights illuminated it. And there was the dog that was staring at me again. And I was like, where did you come from? So I pulled my car off the road and I got out and again, the dog ran away. And again, these woods were so thick that I couldn't even figure out where it had run into. And I. I set up my tent and I snuck inside and I was so scared. I was like, please, nothing, nothing, nothing come. And I finally fell asleep. And when I woke up early in the morning, as soon as the sun came up, I was like really excited to get out of that place. I got out of my tent and there was this little paw print on my car. I think it was looking out for me. So, I think so. Sounds like it. But there it. are some weird things in those northern Arkansas, southern Missouri woods. And Brian Barber grew up camping and hiking in the Ozark Hills in southern Missouri. And when he was 17, on fall break from school, he and a friend went on a nine-day camping trip. It was in November. They set up camp in an isolated spot deep in the forest. I typically, if I don't have to, I won't use a tent. So we just had a tarp over us, like a little lean-to kind of tarp set up. And fire and just two sleeping bags on the ground. Um, in the middle, just kind of a random location in the middle of the forest. It happened at two different nights. Probably 1 a.m., I woke up, and the area surrounding where we were sleeping was kind of lighter than the rest of the forest. 
and it was right on top of us. And, I, you know, it's one of those things you wake up in the forest and your eyes are kind of tired and I wasn't sure if I was actually seeing a, a noticeable difference in the light around us versus the light, you know, a hundred feet away. I woke up my friend and said, hey man, can you help, can you help me with this? Because I, I think there's a light around us, but I can't tell where it's coming from. It's not, it doesn't make any sense. And, and he saw it too. Didn't think much of it. And then a couple nights later, we went on like a late night hike. Um, so we just kind of running around the forest. You know, we're, I forget how old we were, 17. And we were down the bottom of a hill. It's fairly hilly country down there. And up on top of the hill, I was like, no, oh, there's somebody walking around up there because they're carrying a lantern or some kind of light. And we thought, oh, let's just you know, walk up the trail and kind of sneak up on them and see how close we can get to them before they, before they notice us. And we're walking up the trail and it just kind of always was, you know, a hundred yards in front of us in the forest, this light. And we did this for half an hour and we couldn't catch up to it, whoever this person was we thought was a person and eventually we were like let's just run run towards it you know that's the only way we're going to catch it and we never could we never could get close enough to it it was always kind of away from us you know just just within shouting distance but not you know close enough to be kind of in that light and this this went on for like two hours and we were just kind of zigzagging through the forest trying to figure out how to catch this weird glowing thing in the forest but it was just everywhere and, and, and almost nowhere in some respect so we never caught it so did brian ever figure out what it was well he's a scientist so he really wants to figure out what it is but he hasn't yet but he's really skeptical and he doesn't believe it can be a ghost he thinks there has to be a rational explanation the truth is out there. Maybe so, Mulder. <laughs> There's more to our habitat than we can explain, and that can be eerie, but eeriness isn't all bad. My name is Harry Whitlock. So I retired from the Army in 2006 and moved back to Wyoming, and I was offered a job as a lab tech in the local hospital, but I was working the night shift, generally from 11 at night till 7, 7.30 in the morning. So as a lab tech, I deal with uh, um, everybody's precious bodily fluids, pretty much. Most of the night, I'm by myself. But at 4 o'clock, another worker comes in, a phlebotomist. I remember distinctly, I was in the hematology section, and it's about in the middle of the laboratory. And I was talking with Tilma. She was a phlebotomist who came in. And we're standing kind of face-to-face. And all of a sudden, this weird kind of light just comes streaking from the back of the lab to the front of the lab. And it wasn't scary or anything like that. It's just like, what was that, Tilma? She says, I don't know. What was that? We both saw it. You know, that's some electrical arc or something like that, but it it had an otherworldly feel to it. It didn't seem like something was shorting out because it went right through the middle of the room. And it was, you know, just a small, like, little baseball-sized spot of light. And uh, so we just, well, that was weird. I went back to what I was doing, and she headed upstairs to collect a few blood samples. 
And she comes back about 10 minutes later and said, you know what happened a few minutes ago? Said, Mr. So-and-so died. About the same time we had seen that light. And that's kind of when the goosebumps, you know, the hair raised up on our arms. Like, oh, that's kind of freaky. I hate to be the English nerd that I am, but, you know, I always think of Hamlet on the line, there's more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio, something like that. You know, there's just some really weird things that happen in the world. And that's my only ghost story that I have to tell. And that's the last ghost story I have for you, Caroline. Me too. It's gotten pretty dark. And cold. And so I think it's about time that we close this portal that we've opened. I agree. Our storytellers were Brian Profizer, Trish Rader, Felicia Friesma, Brian Barber, and Harry Whitlock. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Erin Jones. The show is produced by Caroline and me, Alana Elder, August Law, and Annie Osborne. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Micah Schweitzer. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. We didn't get caught tonight, though. We didn't catch one either. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.